This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Welcome to It's Just Gone. Four minutes after seven, you're listening to Classic Business Breakfast with myself, Nastasia Arendt. So flying solo again this morning. Uh, Arabile should be back with us uh, tomorrow morning with all his travels and little stories from uh, Manchester. Nonetheless, uh, in studio with me is Chantal Marks, who's a portfolio manager at F&B Wealth and Investment. We've got uh, quite a full show to cover and get through right up until 8 o'clock. We're going to start off with a conversation looking at um, how the looming NHI disaster would dwarf ESCOM. And this is according to Dr. Johan Serfontein. He is from the Free Market Foundation's Healthcare Policy Unit. We uh, will talk to him about what exactly he proposes as a method to fix the public um, health system and to introduce uh, competent management, perhaps at all levels. We'll see what he has to say about that. And the so-called... Um, inclusionary housing policy that was adopted by the city of Johannesburg, which envisages uh, the rich and poor living side by side in some of the city's exclusive residential development. So it's garnered some mixed reaction. And we mentioned that yesterday in our hot news segment, but we're going to be speaking to Ray Matlaka, who's a MoneyWeb contributor. He's been covering that story for the past few months since it was proposed at its draft policy form. We'll find out for him exactly what he uh, has found out on that front. And it turns out that over 300 people are likely to die from coal power station emissions every year. This is according to ESCOM. So we'll speak to Melita Steele, who's a climate and energy campaign manager at Greenpeace Africa, about these um, revelations that have come out uh, from ESCOM. So all this and more is coming up. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Quick check-in on the market. Stocks in Asia traded lower this morning as investors sought clarity on the U.S.-China trade front after earlier cheering the postponement of a closely watched deadline in early March. Mainline, uh, rather mainland Chinese stocks uh, slipped in early trade after seeing explosive gains yesterday. The Shanghai Composite slipping 0.2%. Uh, the Shenzhen component uh, down 0.3%. Meanwhile, in uh, the in Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index also fell uh, four tenths of a percent. Japan's Nikkei largely flat. Over on Wall Street side, the Dow Jones jumping 109 points, led by gains in Caterpillar and Goldman Sachs. S&P 500 gaining 0.3 percent as the materials and financial sectors outperformed. The Nasdaq Composite climbing uh, half a percent. Meanwhile, in Europe, the FTSE 100 was flat. The French CAC rose four tenths of a percent, and the German DAX up six tenths of a percent over here the uh, all share index down uh, two tenths of a percent at uh, 55,878 points and the top 40.2 percent lower this is classic business breakfast with MoneyWeb. arabile gumede and astasia aronsa on classic 1027 Seven minutes after seven, uh, we do have Chantal Marks, who's from F&B Wealth and Investment. And we're joined on the live by Jamil Ahmed, who's the Global Head of Currency Strategy at FXTM. Uh, Jamil, let's start off with you. We kicked off the week with some optimism following uh, the announcement by President Trump late on Sunday that he will delay the U.S. increase on Chinese tariffs, which were scheduled for March 1st. Since that news, how is the global market and and the picture looking right now? Thank you very much for having me on FXTM as always. So yes, financial markets were certainly in a celebration mood yesterday. The Chinese and uh, Shanghai Composite, the Shanghai Composite Index advanced over 5%. You had a lot of emerging market currencies globally that were stronger against the US dollar. And also you had a stronger risk appetite generally. So you saw a lot of different global stock markets moving higher in momentum. Again, that was good for emerging market sentiment. The South African rand moved over 1.3% at one stage. What investors really want to see now is whether this so-called sign-in summit, which is what Trump called for before he left for Vietnam last night for the next summit with the North, uh, North Korean leader in, in later this week, what that means for financial markets. Because a sign-in summit suggests to investors and suggests to everybody else that a trade deal was closed, which is fantastic for risk sentiment. It's fantastic for the global economy because this means it's a long-standing issue that has left financial markets 
very erratic and very much anxious should hopefully be close the door. Speaking of anxious, uh, on the Brexit side of things, uh, UK Prime Minister Theresa May is not really winning on uh, on her side of things. What's Brexit looking like, uh, you know, in terms of them getting at least a chance of delaying something on that front? Brexit's still a very, very misty cloud. That's all we can say. Um, Brexit remains very unclear. Nobody really knows what's happening, despite March 29th only being a couple of weeks away. The latest suggestion is that the Labour Party will today make a call, at least, that there should be a second referendum, that Theresa May probably is going to be left needing to push back the uh, March 29th day into at least May. That's what the news reports. So, again, we've seen a lot of movement in the British pound. The British pound's moving higher because investors generally are thinking that Brexit will not happen or if it will happen, it won't happen as early as next month, which again is good for risk sentiment and is another reason why the South African rand can move a little bit higher based on markets no longer being so worried about a no-deal Brexit at the end of next month. But what I would say is that investors need to take everything with a pinch of salt when it comes to Brexit because things can change very quickly. Chantal, I'm going to bring you into this conversation. Uh, local market performance uh, yesterday, what was your take on it? Yeah, I mean, so we saw the RAND uh, strengthen by quite a bit. And unfortunately, in the South African context, a stronger RAND is not necessarily good for local markets. It's good for certain pockets of the local market. So we saw some really strong performances from most of the banks as, lo- as well as the retailers. Uh, whereas on the RAND hedge side, those stocks slipped back a little bit and resources came under pressure despite uh, rising commodity prices um, across the board. Um, in particular, platinum miners were quite weak despite the platinum price increasing by 3% yesterday. Mm. So the stronger rand really weighing on sentiment in the resources sector, perhaps also investors t- uh, taking the opportunity to take some profit um, in, pre- in the precious metal space. So a mixed day, but net yeah. net, the rand hedges are bigger than the SA Inc shares. So we ended down on the day. All right. We also had uh, some results, uh, Supergroup, uh, Liberty 2 Degrees, Sassol. Which one of those did you manage to get a look at? So I managed to look at most of them. <laughs> um, but I think that the, the late afternoon um, was dominated by Supergroup's results. Mm-hmm. And they were actually quite good. Yeah. So, I mean, relative to what we've seen out of um, some of the other logistics players, they've printed a really solid... Uh, set of results. Headline earnings per share up 12.3%, revenue up 8.2%. Both of those numbers were ahead of market expectations. They managed to improve their operating margin as well, which in a highly competitive environment is very commendable. They said that their supply chain Africa business uh, benefited from an improvement in kind of commodity-led logistics. Mm. And it does tie in with kind of a narrative of green shoots emerging in the in the South African uh, commodity space, where we are actually seeing production starting to ramp up, exports starting to improve, and this business is benefiting from that. Um, also very interesting was their dealerships, uh, South Africa numbers. So yeah. there they saw revenue come under a lot of pressure, but they've actually rejigged their business model in Mercedes-Benz, and they've managed to increase margin in that dealership business, which is not something we've seen out of any sort of motor vehicle dealership in a very long time. So a pretty solid showing from them. There is still weakness Mm -hmm. um, in Australia in particular and in consumer facing logistics in South Africa. But overall, it's an encouraging result. When it comes to um, Sassol, a few months ago, a couple of months ago, there was concern that the Lake Charles project was going to have more overruns and Yesterday, they published their numbers, some saying that, you know, they're a little bit softer than they expected them to be. What's the concern for you when it comes to Sassel, even though the CEO say that they said that they are on top of the project and everything seems to be going OK for now? Well, the concern right now is that no one trusts what the CEO and what management says. Yeah. Um, there's been a bit of a there's now a bit of a distrust around management targets, particularly relating to to Lake Charles, and also a distrust again mm-hmm. on their ability to allocate capital um, in a in a productive way. Yeah. So. It all depends on whether or not Louisiana will be on time now because any further delays or budget overruns um, will see investors 
kind of leaving the stock behind. I mean, this isn't, uh, this has happened before. I mm. mean, every single time uh, there's a delay at Louisiana, the stock gets sold off. Yeah. Um, but I think that investors are really um, tiring of this story now. All right. Jamil, back to you. Uh, news or information that you're going to be keeping an eye on throughout the week? Well, we've got two major events this week. You've got the summit in Vietnam between U.S. President Donald Trump and also the North Korean leader. So we're going to see what happens there. And also you've got a few testimonies from the Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell, where markets will be looking for a little bit more clarity over where the Federal Reserve stand when it comes to central bank optimism. Generally speaking, we do believe the U.S. trade tensions or the trade optimism as it is now is going to continue weighing on financial markets. Investors will want some more clarity over when the sign-in summit will happen or what the sign-in summit really means. Generally speaking, that's going to be the next catalyst towards any more risk appetite markets, which would mean stronger, stronger stock markets, better risk appetite, and of course, emerging market currencies can gain from that as well. Thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Jamil Amaduzi, Global Head of Currency Strategy at FXTM. We still have Chantal Marx, who's from F&B Wealth and Investment throughout the show. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 15 minutes after 7, the Zonda Commission of Inquiry into State Capture heard how former ESCOM executives, including both chairman and finance director, took orders and leaked confidential company documents to people associated with the Gupta family. And somebody who I know has been covering everything and anything that has to do with ESCOM is none other than Sikonati Manchancha, who is the deputy editor at the Financial Mail. He was also at the inquiry. Sikonati, thank you so much for your time this morning. I know uh, the current chairman, uh, Jabu Mabuza, took to um, the stand to basically relay some of the things he had witnessed since taking over. Perhaps you could uh, share with us some of the things he mentioned at the inquiry. Morning, Natasha. Yes, indeed. Uh, Mabuza told Judge uh, Kondo that ESCOM conducted a forensic investigation as soon as this current board uh, came in uh, last January. They, uh, ESCOM had suspended or fired and indeed uh, uh, it got rid of, of, of about 17 executives. It had to get uh, into detail of what happened. They suspended uh, Machela Koko, who was at that time uh, the chief generation boss. Uh, Anwar Singh had resigned, uh, the finance director, and Ben Gubane, the former chairman, had resigned. Uh, the, the company took their laptops and, of course, it went through a court process to get other emails and it found that all of them, together with a head of legal and compliance and company secretary, Susan Daniels, had leaked confidential information to Regiment Cattle and to Salim Essa, who was representing the Gupta family uh, at the time. They also uh, found that these individuals took instructions from uh, illegally took instructions from from the members of uh, the Gupta family via Salim Essa and indeed Regiment Capital, Eric Wood uh, being the leader at that time of Regiment Capital. Uh, Salim drafted resolutions for the board of ESCOM, resolutions that benefited his business interests, and the board just uh, rubber stamped, uh, accepted those and handed him uh, the business he desired. Right. The one thing that I found fascinating as this uh, commission unfolds and proceeds with its work is that uh, Coco Magella is still uh, tweeting away. He published uh, an article or an opinion piece in um, the Fin24, rather, giving his story or relating his uh, take on events. What do you make of his tweets and is he likely to appear in front of the commission? Advocate Vincent Malika, the evidence leader yesterday, has already said Machela Koko has submitted his own version and will indeed appear before the commission. So will the other people. Uh, if they don't appear voluntarily, uh, they, they, they will indeed be dragged, kicking and screaming into the commission. Suzanne Daniels has submitted a version. Anoj Singh has submitted a version. Uh, Machela will uh, appear. And what he is doing is basically rebranding himself as an expert rather than a complicit in the crimes 
not only of uh, not, not only of leaking confidential information from a national key point, but also you, you I can tell you kinds of fraud and corruption and indeed treason uh, can he can answer to those together with the people. So he's, he, it's a fight back campaign. He's rebranding himself as an expert, trying to distance himself from the uh, from the rot that he, uh, over which he presided at ESCOM. That is public campaign. Thank you so much for your time, Sikanati. That's Sikanati Manjanja, who's the deputy editor at the Financial Mail. You can actually find that opinion piece on Fin24's uh, opinion section. It's titled, uh, ESCOM is broken, but it wasn't the Guptas and bailouts won't fix it, if you want to have a look at that um, version of events from uh, Majela Koko. But let's have a look at uh, news, rather traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 721, Dr. Johan Serfentene is a member of the Free Market Foundation's Healthcare Policy Unit. And he's of the view that the looming NHI disaster would uh, dwarf ESCOM. And the only way to fix the public health system is to introduce uh, competent management at all levels. And this would mean getting rid of entrenched union members. Dr. Serfentene, thank you so much for your time this morning. Let's talk about why you believe that NHR is going to be the bigger crisis than the already big crisis that we currently have on our fa- hands in the form of ESCOM. Um, NHI, if you look at the numbers involved, is going to be twice the size of ESCOM. Now, if, if the government is unable to manage ESCOM and they need to bake it up into three parts to make it a, a viable um, and manageable entity, then NHI at double the size is going to be a, a double the problem there. Um, so it's a big problem. And I mean, you can only look at the current government institutions that are compensating in this way, and you're looking at the compensation fund, you're looking at uh, the road accident fund, I mean, those are both in absolute chaos. And of course, SASA is the third one. Mm. So this would be bigger than SASA as well. Um, and yet, you know, every government institution that's got to pay out money in large amounts is a total mess. So thinking that NHI is going to be anything different is, is really ludicrous. Some of the critics that came out last year with regards to NHR were talking about the cost and how services will actually be rendered from that NHR context. We had the recent launch of the Presidential Health Summit report. Is that even adding more, I suppose, uncertainty around this entire debate on the NHR? I think that the the idea behind the Presidential Health Summit was initially that uh, they would be looking at concrete ways to fix the public health sector, which is a much needed step if you want to implement NHI. And yet that also turned into kind of a lobbying action for NHI itself, which was not uh, what it was supposed to be. And yet it was used as a platform to push that agenda. Mm. So, so yes, the public health system definitely needs to be fixed and it needs to, to happen quite urgently because... Uh, the NHI fund will not be able to contract with any healthcare facility if they don't comply with the norms and standards of the Office of Health Standards Compliance. So at the moment, uh, in the last inspections, you had six out of uh, 696 facilities that actually complied with these norms and standards. Mm. If you expand that to the rest of the health sector, you're probably looking at 30 or 40 facilities. Mm. And and obviously, you can't render services if you've got 40 facilities that qualify with the necessary norms and standards. So as much as everybody's saying we need to implement NHI, you need to fix the public health sector first. And of course, the question is, if the aim of NHI is to provide access, free access to quality healthcare services, and and you've sought out the quality in the public sector, then actually you've already achieved universal health coverage in having free access to quality health services. Mm. In terms of the research you may have done, when you look at NHL uh, as a whole, perhaps in other countries where it has been implemented, um, is there, I suppose, a, a method that works? And in which countries are those? You, you have to look at the, the specific unique situation in South Africa. There's, there's not a lot of countries that has a pure single-payer model. Canada would be one of them. Canada is massively expensive. Taiwan is another one, and South Korea, and in Taiwan and, so, and then Estonia, of course. Estonia's got massive waiting periods. In Taiwan and South Korea, there's a lot of co-payments. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at, at annual co-payments for those people of up to sort of $2,000 a year that they pay out of their pockets anyway. And that's besides the fact that 80% of the population there are busy paying taxes. Mm. So it, it really, it's difficult to comprehend that in South Africa, 
where you currently have more people paying for their own private medical schemes that you want to reduce the number of payers to the taxpayers, which is, which is less than that, and think that they can afford this system. If you look at what happened in Ireland, in 2011, they published the NHI white paper there. Mm. They wanted to implement it. Four years later, they did a costing and they realized that they couldn't do it then or ever and they scrapped the system and they looked at a solution that fit them. Now, in South Africa, when we ask what it's going to cost, the minister says, it doesn't matter, we need to do it. But in the end, mm. you, cannot, you cannot work on that premise. It's a major policy shift. And the same document he refers to when he says, uh, it's not prudent to do a costing because it can keep changing. It also says if it's a major policy shift, you do need to do a costing. And we, we're not getting to that. And I think the moment we get to that, we'll realize we need to make another plan. Mm. On the case of uh, unions, I suppose whenever we have policy shifts or we, we're trying to do something with, um, I suppose, big entities like ESCOM, there'll always be backlash. Do you get the sense that we are having a seamless conversation where the message is being trickled down properly when it comes to unions and how do we fix that so everybody's around the table be it ESCOM, be it the NHI or various any other policies that we're trying to implement? Well strangely enough Kusatu is very supportive of NHI when in fact I think the average Kusatu member is is not going to be as supportive of NHI because they currently have access to to the private system through their through their medical scheme um, and that is going to change, obviously, in the NHI environment. So, so it's quite strange, um, especially taking into consideration that the, the nature of how NHI is going to be established is necessarily going to mean that there are going to be job losses in the provincial health departments. There's mm-hmm. going to be job losses um, at national health department. Um, and then, of course, in all of the hospitals that don't qualify to contract the NHI, there isn't going to be an income stream for them, and those people are going to lose their jobs. So it's very strange that Kusatu is not pushing to fix the healthcare system at the moment because it is going to lead to job losses if you implement the NHI. And I don't think that they've read the policy into to that extent that they realized it. You know, so. Um, it's odd because in ESCOM they're saying there wasn't enough um, consultation with everybody when they decided to break it up. And yet NHI, you find that there's been very little consultation. You know, the, the single the single payer model coming to that decision, you know, it's a strange decision because even the research provided by the Department of Health doesn't speak to the decision to have an, a single payer system. And one really has to as to look at the, the broader context in South Africa where we're currently sitting with, with rampant state capture. Mm. And you've got to wonder, in 2010, when this decision of a single-payer system was made, was it made in the interest of the country or was it made in the interest of external individuals? Mm. When it comes to the healthcare system, I mean, does Aaron Mutsualedi even have enough time between now and elections, which I don't think there is, and chances are when, if the ANC uh, wins the elections, he might be moved to a different department. So there'll still be a lot of movement around the, the health department, and we won't be able to fix at least some of the problems we've identified. From your perspective, what are some of the low-hanging fruit that whoever assumes that uh, particular department can tackle first before we even perhaps even go into more detail on NHI? I think one of the biggest problems is, is in fact, the management crisis. Mm. Um, that happens at all levels. If you look at the facilities, uh, what are the problems? There's a problem with cleanliness. There's a problem with staff attitude and things like that. If you have a company that's got a contract to clean your facility, and there is such a contract, somebody in your business needs to make sure that that company does their job. Mm. So if if there's a problem with cleanliness, it's purely somebody not doing their job to check up that the cleaning company is doing their job. So so that's not a money issue. That is purely a management issue. Mm. Um, and, and that needs to be sorted out. And unfortunately, it's, it's not just, uh, you know, it's at all levels. So uh, I don't know how one solves that problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at, you know, in, in a short time. Um, but, you know, things like that is definitely something that you do need to look at. The, the whole logistics system, um, one needs to sort that out. And, and of course, the, the looming malpractice crisis as well that, that's currently happening in the state where, where they're sitting with 80 billion rands worth of liabilities. If that carries on, you know, the NHI fund is going to start off with as, as much liability as, as they've got available in funding. Mm. So it, it creates a major problem in that sense as well. Dr. Serfentain, thank you so much for your time. That's uh, Dr. Johan Serfentain, who's from the Free Market Foundation's Healthcare Policy Unit. Time to have a look at news headlines. 
every morning. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 731. The so-called inclusionary housing policy that was adopted by the city of Johannesburg, which envisages the rich and poor living side by side in some of the city's ex, uh, exclusive residential developments, has garnered mixed reaction from private property development developers. Rather, and uh, to talk to us a little bit more about it is Ray Maslaka, who is a MoneyWeb contributor, and he's written that article that I mentioned yesterday that you can find on the MoneyWeb site. Uh, Ray, perhaps you could share with us. Um, when it comes to the mixed reaction, why are these, uh, I suppose, the residential developers and industry bodies divided? Well, Anastasia, the city of Johannesburg has stepped up its efforts um, to provide social housing um, and affordable housing throughout the city of Johannesburg. And the policy itself, uh, it really compels property developers to allocate at least 50% of any new residential development um, comprising of about 20 or more units to what, what is called um, affordable and social, uh, affordable housing, basically. So let's put it into context. If a developer develops uh, 40 residential units in an apartment building in Rosebank uh, and Stanton in Johannesburg, which are uh, regarded as exclusive uh, uh, areas in the city, they, 40 of those units have to be considered, I mean, to, Top of those 40 units, rather, have to be considered as affordable housing. So you can imagine the idea that property developers uh, so far have had free reign to develop, uh, you know, as many units they want, uh, targeting uh, different segments such as higher uh, uh, LSM uh, and really um, higher income earners as well. So now the city is saying that, you know, we're taking away that free reign that you've had. And you have to uh, uh, allocate a portion of your of your um, uh, you know apartment buildings or developments to social housing, and actually capping the prices uh, at which property developers can charge for rental units and for um, uh, 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 units for sale. So the industry is a bit divided, saying that um, the policy is a bit onerous. It might also um, deter property developers from also investing in residential um, units as well, because uh, it seems like the city of Johannesburg is now playing a, a nanny uh, municipality over how developers can develop their own uh, residential units. Are there property developers that are in support of this uh, move? Yes, um, I spoke to about two developers. One of them are in called Baldwin Properties, which is a JSE-listed uh, uh, property developer that specializes in developing residential um, uh, units uh, for sale and for rent. They are in full support of this of this uh, policy. They believe that uh, property developers have a role um, in, in eliminating uh, what is called spatial inequality in Johannesburg, um, as well as the country as well, by the way. Um, you know that, uh, you know, unfortunately, the legacy of our pride case has meant that People, uh, you know, people, for example, who live in Soweto, um, travel for a long time to get to work and spend a lot of money to, to reach economic nerves. That is a last year released um, a, a, a piece of research saying that um, South Africans spend about 40% of their income on public transport to reach work, which is quite high given that the global average is about 10%. So there is a bit of special, there is a special inequality as a result of apartheid. And Bowen Properties believe that it is the role of developers to fix this and bring South Africans closer to economic nodes and places of work and play. I understand as well that uh, the city has offered some of the property developers, well, most of the property developers, four options uh, through which they comply with this policy. What are some of those options? So um, under the draft policy, which was under an intense debate since last year, the city of Johannesburg only offered property developers one option to comply with, with um, the policy. They said that, um, you know, the, the, the basic reasoning was that, um, you know, the, 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 the rental that uh, property developers can charge would be capped uh, at about 2100 per month. 
specifically targeted at households earning less than 7,000 rand per month. And there was an outcry from the property developer, from property developer saying that the, the, the option was, unuse, it was unworkable, it was difficult to implement, especially property developers who, who develop um, the sectional title schemes uh, in exclusive suburbs like West Bank and Sankton. But the end of the adoption policy has added three more options, giving uh, property developers the option to develop uh, units that are that are that are very that are in size, so a, you know, a minimum of 18 square meters to a maximum of 30 square meters. Um, so so, so the, the city has also included an option in which um, property will it will give property developers the free reign. And to include um, housing, uh, inclusionary housing, sectional uh, council scheme. So leaving it up to developers to comply and negotiate with the city on how they would best, uh, how they would best uh, comply with the scheme. Um, there's also incentives that are offered by the city, such as increased density, uh, increased space uh, for for their development um, when they receive zoning and land rights as well, um, and as well as limited parking as well for those inclusionary housing and those sectional council schemes as well. But uh, developers that I've spoken to actually wanted monetary incentives such as tax rebates, uh, a discount on uh, zoning rights and land usage rights. But I can imagine in a, in a context in which uh, South Africa is is uh, battling in terms of the fixed uh, revenue collection efforts, and um, that you know tax incentives would be near impossible at this point. Ray, uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Ray Masaka, who is a MoneyWeb uh, contributor. You can find his article on uh, the Money website if you want to read more about what's been happening. And, of course, uh, also follow him on uh, Twitter to find out a little bit more as he continues to uh, cover that story. The title of that article is Mixed Response to the City of Johannesburg's Inclusionary Housing Policy. Chantal, I'm going to have to put you on the spot here just a little bit. And I know I asked you this um, before we started the show. I'm going to let you think about the answer a little bit. And it's about none other than Warren Buffett. A lot of guys love him. And a lot of guys uh, must have read his letter that he released to uh, Berkshire um, investors on uh, Saturday from beginning to end because they take up everything that he says and i know one particular um business publication business uh, media site which i used to work for uh cnbc that loves him like they love to quote anything warren buffett says and there's an article in the wall street uh, journal where he acknowledges that he overpaid uh for Kraft heinz and he says that he's not planning to change its uh you know, the Berkshire Hathaway's ownership stake in the company despite the struggles. So we're going to go to traffic and I'll find out what exactly you think of Warren Buffett and his investment strategy. Let's have a look at uh, traffic. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. 741, an amendment to the South African Income Tax Act, which will have hard-hitting consequences for South Africans working outside the country, will come into effect uh, March 2020, and South Africans earning an income abroad should be considering their options, and that's according to um, Corinne van der Merwe, who's the Managing Director of uh, Sovereign Trust. Corinne, thank you so much for your time. We've been talking a lot about this um, expat tax that's coming to South Africa and for those who may have missed it perhaps you can give us a little bit of a background as to where we've been when it comes to expat tax up until now. Good morning listeners and thank you for the opportunity. Well up until now South Africans who have worked abroad were not liable for tax should they have spent 183 days outside of the country of which 60 days must have been consecutive. Um, anyone spending less amount of time outside of South Africa were indeed liable for tax. So this change that's coming into effect on March 2020 is really affecting those South Africans who have had their income treated as exempt from a tax perspective because they've spent 183 days outside of the country. Right. There are countries that could be considered uh, as quite expensive, the UK being one of them, Dubai and a few others. 
some might be questioning how do you maintain your standard of living uh, at an appropriate level and then still be uh, paying tax uh, back home? Yes, no, you just this is not. And um, we've done a bit of research on this. And for example, the average expat salary in Dubai during 2018 was two million. But if you consider the expenses and um, to live in Dubai, it's it will make it very, very difficult for someone who would become liable for tax in South Africa to really maintain that type of lifestyle. And um, it will cost you approximately 450,000 rand in tax while you live in Dubai um, to pay tax in South Africa, which is quite a big chunk out of your salary. So we do think that there will be South Africans who will financially immigrate to just lessen the blow as a result of that. Alternatively, that will probably end up setting offshore uh, professional services companies and international pensions um, to also try and lessen the blow as a result. Are there options um, for people to consider? Um, yes, I think we might have a handful of South Africans who will return to South Africa just because the cost of living outside of South Africa will be too expensive. I don't expect to see too many of those. Um, there are not that many jobs available in South Africa. But I think I think we will probably see financial immigration happening more and more. We've received quite a few inquiries at Sovereign Trust already. Um, and that is basically the formal process of cutting ties to South Africa. You become non-resident for exchange control purposes and non-tax resident for income tax purposes. I think it is quite a dramatic move. Um, you don't have to give up your passport, but it is still quite a dramatic move. And then something that's less dramatic will be to incorporate offshore professional services companies. Um, it's just been important that clients, when they invoice through these professional services companies, that they make sure that the place of effective management and control is outside of South Africa and that the shareholding is structured in such a way that this type of company is not seen as a controlled foreign company. Um, and I think those are really the two options. Some people will, will opt for the option not to do anything at all. I think that's the worst decision that you can make. Um, SARS will definitely find out about your offshore affairs, about salaries that you receive in terms of common reporting standards. There is now exchange of information automatically. In the past, it used to be on demand, but information is, sh- is shared um, once a year with countries around the world that are signed up for common reporting standards. Corinne, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Corinne van der Merwe, who is the Managing Director at Sovereign Trust. Every morning, Arabile Gomede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's uh, 7.45. Earlier, you may have heard I put Chantal on the spot where she had to tell me what she makes of uh, Warren Buffett's investment strategy from the information that you've, uh, I suppose, gathered over the years and some of the interviews you may have seen. What do you make of Mr. Buffett? So, I mean, he's a very quotable man. And um, that is why it's actually so easy to answer this question because you know exactly what his investment strategy is. It is to buy wonderful businesses at fair prices. Um, So his track record has been exceptionally strong. Um, More recently, not so much. But the recent underperformance could be attributed to, I think, two things. Uh, Firstly, the lack of tech exposure. And secondly, some very specific issues facing the consumer staples environment globally, um, as well as in North America in particular. And you mentioned Kraft Heinz um, as a business there. Uh, That business is very exposed to processed foods. Uh, Processed foods are going out of fashion as we know and even though it is still in high demand in the US it certainly doesn't have the kind of uh, traction that it used to have and the runway for growth isn't nearly as significant as it would have been 10 or 20 years ago the other the other consumer staple is Coca-Cola that is owned by Berkshire Hathaway or a big chunk of Coca-Cola. We have seen li- almost no volume growth in that business over the last few years. And even though they've been able to improve revenues and margins to a certain extent, sugary beverages really isn't the future of um, of liquid consumption in my view. So the strategy makes sense because it is meant to protect investors from buying value traps. Um, and by his own admission, his uh, first acquisition or big acquisition of uh, Berkshire Textiles was such a value trap. And I think one just needs to be careful that even though 
even though Coca-Cola and Kraft Heinz may have been value or wonderful businesses at fair prices at the time that he bought it, the environment may have changed to an extent where these businesses are no longer wonderful and no longer enjoy structural support. I'm sure that this is something that he is looking into. Um, and one of the things that I think um, they could also try and explore a little bit more is maybe breaking the rule of don't invest in something you don't understand. Um, I, I'm actually a big proponent of only investing things you understand. If you don't understand it, go and do the work and make sure that you do. And he's often said that about the technology space. Um, but I think that once he um, puts in the time to to really look at a company like Alphabet, I think he will find a wonderful business um, at a pretty fair price. So perhaps diversifying a little bit into high growth space. But I mean, I'm not giving Warren Buffett advice. So that is that is not what I'm trying to do here. <laughs> this is uh, this is just simply kind of my observations from from the last year. It's so fascinating. So you were talking about uh, sugary beverages, and you just brought to my mind um, Hewlett Tongert and what happened on Friday. Wow. Yes, so um, they guided for headline earnings per share to fall by 250%. Yeah. So this was a combination of two things. So firstly, you, well, three things really. So you've had a problem with sugar demand um, in South Africa and in Mozambique in particular. Um, you've also had a problem with pricing because imports have been quite quite significant. So those kind of uh, frontline businesses have come under a lot of pressure. Apart from that, because they expect pricing to remain quite weak and demand to remain quite weak, they revalued their biological assets, which is basically their sugarcane. So they took a massive hit on their income statement um, as a result of that. We're not sure what, how big that hit is, but yeah. to my mind, that's the main reason why they're making a loss. And then the third thing is they have all these these like all this amazing land um, around Umschlange that they no longer utilize for growing sugarcane. Mm. And they've been selling it over the last decade or so, and they've been making a lot of money, but demand for land um, seems to have fallen off a cliff a little bit. And they've been unable to get the kinds of prices that they want, so they haven't concluded any land deals. So yeah, just a, a, a very um, kind of negative trading statement from, from Tonga Dulet probably led by uh, a structural decline in sugar. Yeah. You may be onto something about this uh, tech thing. And the reason I say that is I just remembered that yesterday uh, there was an announcement that Indra Noy, who used to be the chief executive of Pepsi, she's joined the board of Amazon. Okay. And uh, so they've elected her as a director, and she's also been obviously appointed to its audit committee. But she isn't the only one from the beverage side moving into the tech side. Starbucks chief um, operating officer, uh, Rosalind Brewer, she's joined the board of Amazon. So it's very interesting how you have everybody who's in the beverage side moving to the tech side. And it's something that I'm going to keep an eye on. They may be onto something here that's yeah, happening it seems like it's consumer it, it stays consumer facing but perhaps they're moving on to a more new way of of looking at the consumer as opposed to the old way of looking at the consumer yeah let me put you on the spot again uh, we'll play a fun game tell me something you that you learned yesterday that well that you know today that you didn't know yesterday at this time at 750. Um, okay, so at 7.50 yesterday, um, let's think about this. I'll have to look <laughs> at what what came out on, on Sands yesterday. That's where I learn most of, um, that's where I get most of my info from. So at 7.50 yesterday, let's see. Um, I think Sassel results were already out, so okay. I already knew what was going on there. I did not know yes. how big the problem was in UK retail until I saw Hammerson's results. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it it looked like there were pockets of strength in UK yeah. retail. But after looking at Hammerson's results, Hammerson, arguably one of the higher quality uh, kind of uh, retail property owners in the UK, um, it seemed as if everything from the high end through to their value offering came under pressure. So um, Brexit having quite a big impact and the UK retail space looking weak overall. 
It's fascinating. As you mentioned that, you know how all your industry colleagues, you'll all know each other. And uh, Greg Davies, who was with us yesterday, is just laughing, saying that I just really put you on the spot with that question. (laughs) But I'm going to tell you something that I learned uh, today that I didn't know yesterday. And that is Bank of uh, of America is um, phasing out the name Merrill Lynch from some of their businesses. Uh, this is in a plan to basically rebrand the bulk of its wealth management businesses as Simply Merrill and the trademark uh, bull will remain in its logo. I'm not surprised. It's a long name. <laughs> it is. Um, and even the, the, the acronym they have, B-O-F-A, some people tend to mess it up. So it, it works either way. After this, uh, we talk to Melita Steele, who's from Greenpeace Africa. Every morning, Arabile Gumede and Anastasia Aronsa on Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. It's uh, seven minutes to eight o'clock. ESCOM estimates that air pollution from its coal power stations causes 333 deaths a year with a health cost from the mortalities of 17.6 billion rand. The big uh, health danger in ESCOM emissions is particulate matter and that being smoke and soot, which exceeds the legal limit at all. Uh, but two of its uh, power stations, and this was the utility submission to the portfolio Committee on Environmental Affairs and to talk to us about the submission is Melitza Steele who's from climate uh, rather who's a climate and energy campaign manager at Greenpeace Africa. Melitza thank you so much for your time. What do you make of uh, ESCOM's submission with, uh, with regards to the estimates to their air pollution? Uh, good morning so as far as Greenpeace is concerned uh, we believe that ESCOM is underestimating the uh, number of premature deaths that are coming from its pollution. Um, but this is the first time that ESCOM has actually gone on record to admit that it is actually causing premature deaths through its coal-fired power stations. Um, Greenpeace would estimate that it is more along the lines of nearly 2,000 premature deaths a year. Um, and we believe that even one premature death is far too much um, in terms of the pollution that ESCOM is actually causing. So one of the members of the research section uh, mentioned that that particulate matter was the big challenge and that's where they need to focus their uh, energy on and not on uh, NO2, which is not a major contributor. Is she right with regards to that? Or are both, uh, I suppose, sulfur dioxide and nitrogen dioxide both uh, just as... It's really a combination of all of those pollutants. That's the real problem. So to say that only one pollutant is a problem is really just um, oversimplifying the issue. So the pollution that's coming from ESCOM's coal-fired power stations contains a multitude of pollutants, including things like mercury. Um, and it's that toxic combination that is causing the premature deaths. Uh, the parliamentary inquiry last year was um, an, a result and a response from a global map that Greenpeace released, which showed that Mpumalanga is the biggest nitrogen dioxide pollution hotspot in the world. And we believe that the satellite data doesn't lie in a way that maybe um, the polluters may lie or um, sort of obfuscate. And it's that combination of pollutants. It's not one pollutant, but it's all of them combined that is causing the problem. In terms of the targets or I suppose thresholds they may have in uh, with regards to how much pollution they emit, uh, is there a way to measure that or even so has ESCOM been able to live up to those expectations or perhaps save their own targets? The research that was released last year shows that ESCOM actually has about 3,200 exceedances of its air air emissions licenses. So although ESCOM is is, um, saying publicly that it's complying with all of the requirements, except for particulate matter, which it says it's out of compliance, um, there are a couple of problems with that. The one being that... um, the National Air Quality Officer has said that the air pollution monitoring stations that the Department of Environmental Affairs has um, 
a lot of them are dysfunctional. So we're actually relying on ESCOM's data in order to assess whether ESCOM is compliant or not. And there are very clear problems in that. With regards to the Department of uh, Environmental Affairs, I know you are critical of the fact that they had weakened their minimum emission standards. And I think some of the work was done without public consultation. Do you have uh, methods at hand at which, you know, you can have this law scrapped if it wasn't done without uh, or rather if it was done without any public input? So that actually refers to the sulfur dioxide limits. Um, which were doubled. Um, So basically, instead of taking the limits which were already weak and making them stricter, the Department of Environmental uh, Affairs took the existing limits and doubled them, and they argued that that was because ESCOM and SASL said they couldn't comply. Um, As far as Greenpeace is concerned, that's absolutely unacceptable. Every country around the world is actually tightening those limits. Um, because sulfur dioxide is a dangerous pollutant which damages people's respiratory systems. Um, and at the moment, because of the, the fact that Greenpeace highlighted that, along with organizations like the Center for Environmental Rights last year, mm. um, there's actually an expert panel that's been constituted to try and assess whether and how that can be changed. But we absolutely believe it should be immediately scrapped. Melita, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Melita Steele, who's a climate and energy campaign manager at Greenpeace Africa. This is Classic Business. Breakfast with MoneyWeb. Arabile Gumede and Nastasia Aronsa on Classic 1027. Got uh, 30 seconds to the top of the hour. Chantal, something you'll be keeping an eye on for the day? Well, I see SENS has already been super busy, um, so I'll be looking at Wilson Bailey Homes, ACI, Cashbuild, and Assaw out with results this morning. And then the big one still to come is ShopRite. So we know that ShopRite issued uh, quite uh, weak trading updates and trading statement um, statements over the last few weeks. So mm-hmm. I think the market will probably be focusing on that. And then we've also got the Saab leading indicator out today, so some economic data as well. All right, that's it from me. I'll be back tomorrow with Arabile Gumete. It's 8 o'clock.